Tonight I want to talk about faith and surrender. Almost all of our religions are built on faith. Yet in the Buddhist teachings, there's really very little emphasis that is put on this concept of faith or belief. There is an element of faith in the Buddhist teachings, but this is more in a sense of devotion. Devotion to the Buddha, to the Dharma, the Dharma, which is the, the teachings or the laws of nature, or devotion to the Sangha. These are the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. So in Buddhism, there is a sense of devotion or faith in these three gems, these three jewels. Yet faith or belief really has very little to do with Buddhism. It has, it's not a primary focus or central theme. In Christianity, faith is in something unseen, unknown, and a promise of something to come in the future. But in the teachings of the Buddha, the emphasis is on seeing. It's on knowing. It's on understanding. It's on our direct experience of things. Not on faith or belief in what somebody tells us and wants us to believe is true. In Pali, in the oral language of the Buddha when the Buddha was giving his teachings. There is a phrase that is ehipasiko. And this means come and see for yourself. And this is what the Buddha taught, ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Not come and believe what is heard. Not to believe anything that we have said or any teacher says or any book says. But come and see for yourself, ehipasiko. And this is really a very beautiful aspect, one of the very beautiful aspects of the teachings, is that you are turned right back on yourself to find out what is true. What is your truth? What is the truth? There's a phrase in the ancient Buddhist text that says, realizing as one sees a gem in the palm. What this means is, if I tell you I have a gem hidden in the folded palm of my hand, the question of belief arises because you don't see it yourself. But if I unclench my fist and I show you the gem, then you see it for yourself, and the question of belief does not arise. Belief arises when there is no seeing, when there is no direct seeing. But the moment you see, the question of belief disappears, and there's just truth. You know that what you see is the truth. There's no question. Also in Pali, there's a phrase, nanadasana. This means seeing with wisdom, not believing through faith. So it's the wisdom that sees. It's the wisdom factor that knows. 
the wisdom that we all have that's with all of us. Otherwise, it's just blind faith, listening to what people are saying. But this is nanadasana, seeing with wisdom. For me, this kind of seeing, direct seeing in my own experience, is what has actually brought about what I call faith, faith in my life. It's not a faith that I feel in something that I have learned intellectually. It's not something from what I've read from books or what other people have told me, but from direct evidence of what I have seen, of seeing what's true, of taking the time and looking to see. And this has given me the faith in the truth of my experience. So nobody can deny that. Nobody can take that away from me. That is my truth. In the Buddhist text, there's a Pali word, sada, sada. And this is sometimes translated as faith or belief. But according to Wapola Rahula, who wrote What the Buddha Taught, he says that sada is confidence born out of conviction. Confidence which comes from conviction so that we feel confident about what we know to be true because we have seen it. And this is the kind of faith that I'd like to explore. Not a blind faith, but a faith as a non-intellectual understanding, an understanding that has nothing to do with the mind or the intellect. Faith as wisdom as heart wisdom. And I make this distinction of heart wisdom as opposed to mind wisdom because the heart for me is a word that refers to an aspect of myself that is not mind. Some other kind of knowing, some other kind of understanding that is not mind doesn't have to do with the mental faculty. The thinking mind arises to try to control the reality, to figure out, analyze, evaluate, have everything understood. But the heart is a quiet place of being. It's an aspect of ourselves that knows what's right. It just knows, you know, that just that sense of knowing what's true, but it's not coming through the mind. And this heart, this quiet space of being, is not personal. It's not self. It's not my wisdom. But it's a higher wisdom. It's an intelligence. Some people call it God. We'll have many, many names for this quality of wisdom, this quality of knowing. And when we quiet down, we can begin to touch this. We can begin to know this. I'm actually pointing to having faith in this inner wisdom. Having faith in this quality that we already have, that each of us already has. In fact, the faith that has brought many of you to this retreat, and we talked about this in one of the groups, what got you here? 
what actually brought you to this retreat? It had, there was something inside that was being touched, that you were being pulled by. This kind of inner knowing from this quiet space of being. And yet even though this inner wisdom is there within each of us, it has to be discovered. It has to be awakened to. It has to be realized so that we can access it more easily in each moment. So we can, we can know and use our inner wisdom. But it's not something that is awakened to and then possessed. Say, okay, now I'm wise. Now I have access to my inner wisdom. But it's a face that is an activity, a way of being and living, a way of affirming every moment what is truth in your life, affirming every moment on an active way, in an active way. It seems that everyone has faith a belief or trust, but it really is just a matter of what it is placed in. Most people put it in things that can be controlled, things that can be manipulated or even escaped from just in case. Things like relationships, a partner or a spouse, I put my trust in my spouse, or trust in the security of a job that this job will just keep going on and this will give me what I need. Or trust in a stable government or a religious belief or trust and faith in a meditation technique that this is going to take me where I need to go. Ultimately, one places their faith in mind, in the structure of mind. And this is why knowledge is regarded as the epitome of human development, because to possess knowledge is to have power over reality. To the extent to which one knows is the extent one can be at ease with reality. This is the illusion that we have. If I know and I really understand intellectually, then I have more power over my reality. We think that then we can trust how things are going to go because we have a sense of control. But these structures, these structures of relationship, job security, religious beliefs, even meditation techniques, get created in our minds to hold back the tide of chaos. We think if we put our faith in these things, then we won't have as much chaos in our lives. We think that it'll hold back facing the unknown the, the uncertainty of life. And it can give us the illusion that everything's under control. And then we create a pseudo-world, affirming the rules and definitions of this world every day. And we all collude in this. The societies collude in this. And then put faith in these structures. Yet these objects never quite live up to our demands and expectations. They just never quite give us what we expect from them. And it seems that people do need to make demands in order to be able to trust, in order to be able to put their faith in something. 
For example, I say, I will love you if you are this kind of person or you do this for me. And then if you do that, then I can put my faith in you. I can put my trust in you. Or I'll be your friend if you're this kind of person or you do these sorts of things. Or I'll do this meditation technique if it gives me the kind of results that I want. Then I can put my faith in it. But I think this is really a conditional trust. I'm really making a bargain. I'm saying, yeah, well, if I can get these things, then I'll give my trust to you. We place conditions on the objects of our faith. But this isn't the kind of faith I'm talking about. Because that doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. If we make conditions, if we put conditions on things, we're probably not going to get things to work out the way we want. We wind up living in perpetual disappointment, fear and chaos, and perpetual activity to halt the chaos. We find ourselves in all this activity again, back in the activity to try to get the chaos to come together. Only it's a fruitless circle of activity going nowhere, accomplishing nothing. And when things don't live up to our demands, we blame our inability to trust on everything around us. Well, it's their fault. If only they would do what they're supposed to do, then I can feel more trusting within myself. And we become victims of the world, projecting our anger on everyone around us. A few months ago, I was with my 12-year-old nephew, who I decided to take on a vacation because he needed some help and needed some attention. He had some difficulties functioning in his school and his family. And it was the first time that I had spent time with him, and I could really see how he has become a victim. He's angry at everyone around him for what they're doing to him, for what has been done to him. The world is not meeting up to his demands for how he wants things to go. And to a certain extent, he's justified, but he doesn't see his own responsibility in it. He doesn't see how he might be able to bring things about differently. The world is not meeting up to his demands. But, we, but most people realize that they must put their trust in something to survive. They have to put their trust in something to survive because to the extent that there is no trust, we're separated from reality and not able to function. An extreme example of this is somebody with psychosis, somebody who can't really make sense out of how the world is functioning, can't put their trust in anything. And in that, they feel cut off and isolated from the world. And they're considered either a threat or they're considered useless. To be ordinary, to be an ordinary human being, in order to function in the world in a way that is healthy, requires for us to reach out 
to touch it, to allow it to affect us, to really participate in the world, to trust in it in some form. And in order to participate at that level, we do need to trust in things in some form. But it's not easy. It sometimes feels hard to trust because reality is so unknown, it's so uncertain, and it feels full of danger. Everywhere we turn, it seems like there's danger, something can happen, and we become afraid. We become afraid to live fully, afraid to participate, really afraid to have faith. There was a fellow on my retreat a few months ago and had a number of interviews with him. And in the interviews, he had continued to have very strong memories of hard and dark times in his life. And he told me that it's very hard to go through a day without experiencing these very difficult memories of the past. And because of these memories, there's a present thought that operated for him that said, it is, it's going to be the same. It will be the same. That there was no sense of being able to get away from these memories. So these memories of the past conditioned the future. So his whole sense of time was just this one of darkness. And the memories would create this present anxiety, one of anticipation of the coming doom. There's always this coming doom. And he was often in a panic to figure out what to do about it. What can he do about getting out of this darkness? How can he, get, how can he make it stop? So his days were just filled with the past, with the present, with the future, the panic, the anxiety, no way to, to get free of it. He wasn't able to trust that he could let go of the memories. Because he thought that if he let go of the memories, then he would be out of control. By holding on to the memories, by having some sense of what might come, gave him a sense of control. It gave him the illusion of knowing what is going to be in the future. And this was his feeling of control in this uncontrollable world. It's very interesting for him to think that he was actually in control, that this was not being totally out of control. But it gave him that illusion of being in control. So there's this tendency to identify and function within our own little worlds. We just get so caught in our own little worlds, and we withdraw and contract and pull back and remain in this secure environment just to find out it's a prison. But sometimes it's hard to actually acknowledge that it's a prison and to want to find a way out. Because to function in the world, we must reach out. We must, 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 must touch it and deal with it, which means taking risks, moving beyond the familiar, out of our comfort zone. We want to be able to control how things will go, but it's impossible. 
And as you can see, it's impossible to control all the factors, all the forces in life. One of my friends who is here on the retreat this summer came to visit me for an afternoon, and she was on her way home. And the next thing she knew, she wound up in the hospital. She was taking her motorbike, and something happened and fell off her motorbike and broke her leg. So for the next four months, she was dealing with broken leg in the hospital and all the mind states that came about from this broken leg. No idea. Just going home, going to go to work, to work that evening or the next day. Everything changed just in a moment. No control, no sense of what's going to happen next. It seems that we must come to terms with this changeability, with the truth of this changeability, with this not knowing, just not knowing from one moment to the next what's going to happen. The mind is always finding itself in situations not of its own choosing. The mind doesn't like that. It has to deal with things that it's not choosing to deal with. And it feels constantly victimized by unknown forces. And it rallies to its defense. But there's an interesting thing here. Because the mind does not see that these situations are brought about by the heart itself. These situations are brought about by the heart, the wisdom, the intelligence, or God, or the higher powers, or the higher forces, whatever we want to name that. It is the heart which is constantly battering at your mental defenses that you may come to a true relationship with yourself. The heart is not going to let us rest in our ignorance, in our darkness, And so it's the very heart itself that's calling out and saying, no, you're not going to keep living like this. This is from Jay Janot, who wrote, Do You See What I See? Who I think articulates the position of the mind and the heart so extremely well. He says, The mind attempts to bring all knowledge all reality within the realm of its own, of, within its own awareness, a hopeless, futile task. The attempt is made in hope that all reality can then be brought under control and order and safety thereby ensured. But reality itself is truth, and it already possesses order and form. The mind in search of truth and security is like a fish in search of water. It is already all around you. It is the very medium of your existence. When one comes to the radical understanding of the universality of truth, the mind can relax, surrender to reality, in full knowledge and faith that it is surrendering to truth and security. It's already all around order and perfection. And yet the mind just keeps searching for order and perfection, but it's already here. 
that we find that it's quite hard to accept the truth of this present moment, to accept the perfection of this present moment. In a way, this word acceptance is the same as trust or faith, because in that acceptance there is the surrendering to the truth of this moment. There's a story which helps illustrate this point. It's one of my favorite stories. There was a farmer from a rather poor family, and his horse ran away one day. How unfortunate, because he really needed his horse to help him in the field. But a few months later, the horse returned with a stallion. How fortunate. Now the farmer had not only his horse, but a wonderful rich horse to help him. And this house was made richer by the fine horse, which his son loved to ride. And then one day when the son was riding the horse, he fell off and broke his hip. How unfortunate that he was, that the stallion came to the house because if the stallion hadn't come, the son wouldn't have broke his hip. But a year later, the war broke out. And all the able-bodied men went to the war. But since his son was lame, he didn't have to go to the war. How fortunate. (laughs) And the father and son survived together to be able to take care of each other. We never know. (laughs) We really want to understand to know why something is happening. But we can't know. It's all too mysterious. I'm sure you can think of examples in your own life where something has happened which seemed terribly unfortunate and then it became quite fortunate. Or perhaps the other way around, something seemed very fortunate and turned out to be a disaster. You may be able to think of examples in your own life. Another story from um, a book called How Can I Help, a book put together by Ram Dass, a spiritual teacher in America. A story of a woman who lost her vision. When I lost my vision, I had been very self-sufficient and together. I was raising five children. I was working. I was volunteering in my community. I was independent enough to be contemplating a divorce from a bad marriage. I'd even given an attorney $500 just before I had to go into the hospital. I'd begun to find myself knocking things over and stumbling around. I went to an ophthalmologist, then a neurologist, then a radiologist, then a neurosurgeon. And finally a doctor said, you have a growth in your brain. If you don't have surgery, it will grow and it will take your life, just like that. The operation took seven and a half hours. The doctor said he almost lost me twice. He'd removed a tumor the size of a hen's egg. All I could see was the faintest bit of light. It didn't hit me until I got home. I didn't recognize myself. I went into the hospital with long hair. I came out with short. I went in at 145 pounds. I came out at 175, wearing my mother's dress. 
I went in and I could see. I left and I couldn't. It wasn't me. And things were bad at home. I couldn't get a divorce now. I was too dependent. I tried to do things for myself, but it often just created more trouble. My youngest daughter didn't want to be seen on the street with me. She was ashamed. I felt so bitter, but I kept pushing my feelings away. What had happened? Why me? I just wanted out of there. One nice fall day, I told my husband I was going out. I went down the elevator and out of the house. I got to the corner and just stopped. I stood there, expecting any minute he'd come down and join me. He never came. I just stood there on the corner. A lot happened on that corner. I saw my past life. I recalled how lonely and helpless I'd felt as a little girl. And there I was now, just like a child again, only with five of my own. I stayed there a long time. Finally, I said to myself, well, here you are, and there's no place to go. It's time you brought a little help into your life. So I went into rehabilitation, and I told them everything I felt. I gave them everything. I gave them my shame and my anger and my fear. I felt it was the truth. And if it was the truth, then how could I be helpless? You don't suffer from the truth. The truth sets you free. Of course it was hard work coming to terms with change, but after a while you have nothing left to hide. You want to bring it all out. You want to make room to receive help. And when you're with a lot of people who are also trying to do that, you get a lot of support. Us blind folks, working together. The more I felt that, the more I found myself beginning to offer help as much as to ask for it. So now, when I work with handicapped people, or anyone really, I find I have a special understanding to share. That's really all I have to offer. It's hard to put into words. It's just, I understand, that's all. And yet, as sure or secure as that may sound, I don't think you're ever really secure. What is security? You can lose it in a flash. I know. The heart is always engaged in the process of leading the mind to places it doesn't want to go into areas of its own darkness and limitation. And this is where you and I need faith. This is where it's all happening for a reason. We feel sensitive, vulnerable, defenseless. Yet we are being led through the darkness into the light in order to wake up from the darkness. And this darkness must be understood. We have to go into the darkness to understand it. And then once it's understood, once it's enlightened, then we are free. We are free of it. And if we're not free of it, then we continue to live in fear and limitation. Again and again in interviews with people, They tend to judge themselves 
and their experiences about what's happening to them, their feelings, their thoughts, as if they shouldn't be happening. I don't want this to be happening. We want to find ways to stop it. This one woman that I was work, working with was feeling so sad. She came in and she was crying. She just said, I don't know why I'm feeling so sad. I feel heavy, isolated, cut off. And I said to her, you know, I don't think it's the sadness that's making you feel that way. I really think it's your attitude towards the sadness. It's the fact that you don't like your sadness that's making you feel so heavy and isolated because you think that it means something about you. And in that identification, there's the closing off from it, the tightening, the contracting. And that's where the heaviness, the isolation arises from, not the sadness. The sadness has a beauty to it. It has a lightness to it. It's life life expressing itself through you. If you think that the sadness is bad, that thought is going to interfere with life's expression and the joy of that expression. But the sadness, the feelings, are very, very beautiful. We don't have to stop these. This is the flow of life, and we can trust this. And this is really the gift to ourselves. The gift to feel all the feelings, the sadness, the happiness, the grief, the joy, the anger. This is offering a gift to ourselves. These feelings, these situations, they all must be experienced in order for the learning to come. It's a way of shining light on the darkness so that we can see it and dissolve it. This letting go of the control can only come from seeing the futility of control. Until we really see, see the futility of this, we can't let go. But the letting go comes automatically in the seeing, in the wisdom of the pain that it's bringing us. And this letting go is an act of love. It's a settling into the faith, a surrendering into the faith. And this surrender of control is the surrender of ego's control. It's the surrender of the I, the surrendering of the self, what the self wants, what I want what I want for me. The surrendering of this. I surrender my patterns, my demands, my expectations. I surrender my fears. This is the surrender of the ego. And love is what's there in the absence of ego. Love is what's there when the self is absent. And this is not another quality of self. Love is not another quality of self. I can say, now I am a loving person, or I want this love for myself. It's not another quality that we can attach to our self-image. It's not a possessive kind of love. It's not a romantic kind of love. It's a love which is present 
in self's absence. A love which is embracing, allowing, accommodating of all experience. It's not really a love that even can be cultivated, but arises naturally from wisdom and insight. It's a love that arises through seeing the folly of control, which is just the silliness of ego's game. It's a little poem. which says, God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. I'll read it again. (laughs) Bit tricky. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. We have to get out of the way. (laughs) If we can get out of the way, everything is there for us. Sometimes after coming through a time of difficulty, we may feel an opening. You may have felt that here, some kind of opening within yourself. You feel love for yourself and others. You feel stronger. You feel a connection. You feel a sense of inner strength, and you're ready for the next step. And then another difficulty comes. But when we have to be careful because sometimes this can be seen as a sign of weakness. When another difficulty arises, we go, oh no, everything's fallen apart. I thought that I was strong and I'm not strong at all. But it's not a sign of weakness or loss. But in fact, it is a sign of strength. Because we are ready for the next step. We're strong to take on the next thing. And that's why another difficulty is coming. It's the next test. It's the next thing that we need to face. So we can't get attached to experience as meaning something about ourselves, as something about me. We can't evaluate. We can't really know where we are in the course of things. What's happening is just what's happening. Just let the process unfold. Just trust. Just allow things to occur. This trust Faith, love, it's all the same. Just use different words, trust, acceptance, love. The more that this faith is contacted, the more this is understood, this is the power source for transformation. This is the transforming power of love. I'd like to end with a poem that even takes it just a little step further. This poem is by a woman by the name of Mirabai, who was a 15th century Indian mystic and poet. 
And she spent most of her time singing and dancing before the image of Krishna. She was wildly in love with Krishna, the Lord Krishna. She says, Oh, my friends, what can you tell me of love whose pathways are filled with strangeness? When you offer the Great One your love, at the first step your body is crushed. Next, be ready to offer your head as his seat. Be ready to orbit his lamp like a moth giving into the light. To live in the deer as she runs towards the hunter's call. In the partridge that swallows hot coals for love of the moon. In the fish that kept from the sea happily dies. Like a bee trapped for life in the closing of the sweet flower. Mira has offered herself to her Lord. She says, the single lotus will swallow you whole. So be ready for anything. <laughs> Let's take a few moments and sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.